we are starting a new series that I, I'm excited for, and it's going to be one for our, our summer. We're talking about uh, a series of the book of Psalms called Summer in the Psalms. And I'll tell you, I, I'm excited to do this as I have a newfound respect for Psalms after our study we just finished in Habakkuk. Because in that store, in that prophecy book, all those chapters lead up to a psalm at the end, and so you get this deep context for a psalm. Sometimes we read them and we think, Someone had an idea, or really good morning devotions, and they wrote this stuff down, and we don't realize that psalms um, are written from such a deep experience. They're not written about what God might do. It's written as a, a confession of what God has done in someone's life. They're testimonies, and it makes them very powerful. And they're not written simply by high-level clergy to be said in these mysterious services. They were written for everybody written for real people, by real people, to wear truth in and memorize it, to wear it in as they repeat it, uh, as they sing them, recite the poetry of it, and, and let it become part of who they are. To me, I think of it kind of like uh, when, when I was a kid and, you'd, and I'd wear in a new baseball glove. Your hand gets bigger between Little League seasons, so you'd get a new one, and as you tried to close it, your hand would get a cramp after about three pulls. So you had to break it in. You'd, you'd use the oil, and you'd put the ball in it, and you'd, you'd wear it in by, by using it over and over again in repetition. And oddly enough, sleeping on it, anyone sleep on their ball glove as a kid? You put it, and then you put it under the mattress, and squeeze it shut. And what you were trying to do is make the leather bendable where it needs to be bendable and remain stiff where it needs to be stiff. And so you would use it, and the only way to, to break these ball mitts in was to use them. Use them in, in simulation, practice them, throwing the ball up in the air and catching it before the game because you don't want to admit that it would give you a cramp in your hand. Playing catch with family members outside, uh, wearing it in, you would have this time to, to break this thing until it became an extension of yourself, an extension of your body. And Psalms are written only about the important things, only about the important things to assimilate become part of who we are. Spending times in the Psalms, I would hope that for the next uh, few Sundays that we are uh, in the summer as we go through them, that it would give us a time of summer of, of cooling down, of being uh, ministered to by God, restored and healed. So it's, it's a health spa for us all <laughs> this summer. You know, God, uh, his natural ministry, his majesty, his power, it has a way what is it about nature that makes us pause? Everybody does this. They don't have to even be saved to stop and, and have this experience as we look at the immensity of what God has made, and it begins to make us think. We can't help but ponder. And for those of us who know the Creator, our pondering always starts to lead back to Him. Like a tide going back to where it came from, we start to think about God. I think such a connection with nature is... is actually one of the, the unique cultural aspects of, of us that live in this state. I once heard someone say, they were talking to people from out of country, and they, they were trying to explain the difference between Oregon culture and California culture. And, he, and apparently the guy paused, and he thought, and he said, the people who settled California went searching for gold, and the people who settled Oregon went searching for land. And that's how we describe the difference. And I don't mean to, to poo-poo on Californians. Gold is a fine thing to go settle for, I guess. But, but there's this, this sense of what this state has to offer, what our region has to offer, is such a rich and beautiful biome that shouts the glory of God. 
In every way, it, it, you can switch from somewhere so quickly to where uh, you could be in desert, and then you can be in desert that's got one little creek and trees next to it. You could be in tall trees. You could be at the coast. And everywhere you go in this state, there is this thing that points at God constantly. It's a rich and beautiful thing. And we're going to be looking a little bit at this way. Nature, uh, particularly in the psalm we're, today, we're looking at today, points us back to God, reorients the spirit. And the ones we're studying uh, in this series are going to be interesting. So um, we may not know this, but Psalms is written kind of like, a, like albums, like collections of songs that went together for one work. And so some of them are meant to be clumped together and listened together in the same way we listen to an album that an artist puts out. And the group we are looking at today are called the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent is Psalms 120 through 135. And these psalms are written uh, to be memorized and recited as pilgrims would make the ascension to Jerusalem, their, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, to the Temple for their sacrifice. It was a common thing. They were meant to go regularly to wherever the tabernacle was. Eventually, the tabernacle is built as a temple. It's built permanently in Jerusalem, and that is where they would go. And they use the term ascent because Jews then and Jews today will always refer to going to Jerusalem as going up. They could have just finished a climb on Mount Everest, and they say, hey, next week, do you want to go up to Jerusalem? It's always up because it is the ascension, because it is a high point where God has descended down and made his presence there. These songs of ascension, they're, they're beautiful and they're rich. And they enhance their worship as they would travel along the road to get to this place and prepare them for when they got to the temple. And as I said when we were going through the uh, communion, don't miss the message here. That it's not about us ascending and making ourselves holy for God. But it's going to the meeting place he set up. Just as for Moses, God descended and Moses ascended. We leave where we're coming, where we've been, and we go to where he is. Our ascent is his descent. And we go there from our distracting and busy, natural, worrisome lives. We want to get there for vivid praise. And how do we do this? We ascend, just as these psalms direct us to, to where he is. Now, I'll tell you, um, I'm starting the album wrong. We're skipping the first track. <laughs> We're going to go right to song two. Uh, song one uh, begins, and it's also very powerful, but it starts with, a, it, it begins with this urban setting of someone who is in a city far away with foreigners, and they just feel like there's nothing but liars around them and violence, and they just desire to be where God is. And they say one phrase that's so powerful, and it is, I've lived too long among these people. And there's this sense, this, uh, wanderlust to leave and to go. And song two picks up uh, along that journey. So my plan is I'm going to read the entire song, and then uh, we'll go back and look at a few points. In it. But we're going to read the whole thing. So today, you're going to listen to someone read a whole chapter of the Bible. It's eight verses long. We can do this. Psalms 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will never slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. 
The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. The Song of the Pilgrim on the Road. Beginning the pilgrimage then required the same things it does now. Assurance and inspiration. Assurance that God is going to be a protector and inspiration for where we're going. And it's amazing that a reflection on nature can provide both of those things. You see, we know God by his name. We know him by his, his ways in scripture. But we can also know about him through the things that he's made. We learn of his patience in the seasons. We learn about his, his faithfulness in the tides. You know, every time I stop and I, I just am somewhere, especially a place that's just natural, whether it's the coast, whether it's the mountains, I always find that God lives life slower than me. I'm very good at learning the lesson, and I'm terrible at applying it. Again and again and again, I come back and go, oh, shucks, I went too fast. The majority of the time I forget something, I'm in a rush. When you guys forget something at home, or is it ever not in a rush? I, I can remember everything when I'm fine. I could forget my children if I'm in a rush. <laughs> Life passes us by when we're in a rush. Anyone remember that old Star Trek episode where Kirk and a few of them went into the wrong time spe speed? They're at the wrong speed that ever the rest of the crew is moving at normal speed and they're moving at the wrong one and nobody can see them. And I feel like that is what we do with life sometimes is we move so fast, we don't see it. And God wants us to slow down, to look up and to be recentered. When we move too fast, it feels like the urgent matters of life are all that really matters, and yet that is an incredibly false belief. You know, sometimes you can find a, a private little corner of a creek or a place you haven't seen before, and everything about it, the light, the trees, where the animals are, the moss, it seems as if God wakes up every single morning to take care of that one little area, and that all of his time is dedicated to it that one little place, that one little glen, and there is just a peacefulness about God that is revealed in nature. And this journey, this need for assurance begins at this gaze up at mountains. And it's a beautiful dual picture. Because mountains, they, they saw them very similar to us. They are ominous, and they're the riskiest part of the hike, but they're also very glorious and wondrous. If you are uh, going on an expedition, the the if you're going to cross mountains, that's the place where you need to really know what you're doing. You need to have all your supplies ready to go because it is the riskiest, but it's also the part that deserves taking the camera out the most. It is the most beautiful part. I placed myself in this guy's shoes who's in an, an urban and noisy place that's unpredictable. Uh, or excuse me, it's, it's noisy and it's, it's ruckus and goes into the unpredictable, beautiful countryside. And it can be a cause of fear. But for people who know the Creator, being in that place is a cause for hope. I wonder what would happen if the pilgrim remained in the city, the city that he mourns in Song 1, where safety is, is predictable and there's no shortage of busyness to keep one preoccupied. He never would have broken free. He never would have gone to all the places he goes and ascends up to the presence of God because the journey always requires stepping into unknown territory. It's always going to require going somewhere. Something that a mountain will take from you very quickly is your sense of power. 
you, you can't just make a phone call, get to the road. You can't just um, get, go into your house when it rains. You are at the mercy of that mountain, and going up to where God is requires us to go into places where we realize that we do not have power there. Everyone sees the same trouble in unpredictable places, but a well-worn pilgrim, there's no fear. One that's been worn in like the ball glove that bends where he should, is rigid where he needs to be. As he looks up at those mountains, he thinks they're beautiful. He thinks they're magnificent. And he realizes that the only one person is big enough and great enough to control that amazing force that could absolutely crush me. And it is the Lord and what a coincidence, he is my guide. You know, I think about you, we, one of the pastimes on the Oregon coast is when it storms, people go watch it. They, they go, they, there's restaurants with windows, and they're like, oh, we're, they're busiest in the summer and during a hurricane. Like, people just want to come and watch it roll in. It's very beautiful. If you're on this side, if you're standing on solid ground, it's beautiful. I have been on the ocean when it gets choppy, and I want my last rights. I feel like I'm going to die. My, my Viking heritage is so far past me at this point, I don't feel the courage out there. It's terrifying. I, you, there's these, sometimes when you just want a nice fright, you can get on YouTube and look at like ships in the storm. It'll be some poor ship of Chinese shippers, and they're coming across the Pacific, and, and you just, you, it, it's terrifying. We're talking waves that are taller than the tallest buildings that we have in this whole city, and ships at their mercy. When you're in it, When you're not standing on solid ground, it can be terrifying. But when you're in that Izzy's that's now a steakhouse at Newport, so sad it's not an Izzy's. Who doesn't want to eat pizza as much as you want binge on pizza and ice cream and tapioca and then watch the storm roll in? You can't do it anymore. You have to get a steak. Oh, well, I'm sure it's good. But if you're sitting there, it's very comfortable, very beautiful because you're standing on solid ground. God shows us something at the point, at this point of the ascent, that He is the greatest power over chaos, over everything. He is uh, the most dangerous one, and He is our guard, He is our guide. Too big to handle is transformed in that moment to only the greatest God could make that. It isn't that mountain's too big to handle. It's too great for me. But as we look at it, his spirit lifts and says, only a great God could make that great place. Such a God defends us. He says uh, in verse 3 and 4, let's read the right chapter before I read the wrong one. Uh, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will indeed not slumber nor sleep. Going on, he says, the sun, uh, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is the shade to your right hand. The sun will not harm you nor, uh, by day nor the moon by night. This reassurance that he needs, if you're going to meet the Lord, the Lord's going to watch over you. If this journey you're on is to to come face to face with God, to encounter, to be made different, God will watch over that pilgrim. He will watch over where you're going. God wants to remove fear from the start because God is found in the peaceful place. Yeah, God comes to the terrifying place. And to the person who's got justice coming for them, he can be terrifying. 
but he doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but peace and confidence. Peace because he's strong and confidence because he loves us. I'm telling you, stress and discomfort can drive us away from sin, but only peace and assurance call us to God, up to the mountain. Call us to where he is. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. Stress and discomfort can make a person really hate the choices they've made and back themselves into a corner, but it's when they begin to dream of where God would take them, how much he's worth it, that they stop just not hurting themselves and start sowing seeds of eternal value. God wants to call you with peace. Know this, God calls you out, not with fear or threats, but with peace and assurance. It is a journey, and it's a pilgrimage to go to where God is, to come to him and to seek him out, for his change, for his confrontation, for his, his repairing, his healing of our life. But it is a peaceful journey, and he puts peace over it. Now, the sun and the moon is an interesting little concept, because I think we understand the sun being a threat. You ever gotten a really bad sunburn? You get that. I want the worst. Everyone remembers they're, they're like the, they're the most memorable sunburn. Mine was about this big, and it was inside my belly button. In there. Because the thing is, you put on sunscreen, and who, who puts it in the belly button? And normally the sun's going like this, so you're fine. But we were in Shasta, and we were inner tubing. It's 112 degrees every day. You walk across the asphalt to the dock to get into the boat, and you thought your flip-flops were going to melt to the ground. And so you're in the water constantly, and when you're in the inner tube, you're at just the right angle in this one evening. I was at just the right angle. The sun was setting, and it was like Egyptian ruins at the summer equinox. The sun just came right in. <laughs> And it scorched the inside of my belly button. Unguarded, unprotected. And the reason it's memorable is because, yeah, it was weird. It lasted for months. It was winter. I'd be in the shower and if water rolled, hot water just the right way, I was like the Pillsbury Doughboy, just, like, it burned. To the core of who you are, I can tell you, the sun can burn you to the core of who you are. And no, I have an any. It had to work for it. I don't have an Audi belly button. Burned. We all have these sunburns that we can remember. We understand the threat of heat stroke. You put yourself in the mind of a Middle Easterner, and you think sun would be very terrifying. It would kill a lot of people. And um, you think about just, you know, we have, even now in Oregon, a heat wave comes, and there's cooling centers with air conditioning, if you were to, uh, to subject us to even greater heat and no air conditioning, it would be a terrifying thing. Real, true, life-threatening stuff. But the moon, the moon is a weird one. I had to look it up. As it turns out, ancient people very much believed that too much moon exposure was dangerous like too much sun exposure. But unlike the sun that would overheat you, kill you, burn you, the moon had this way of doing um, hidden secretive, sort of deep-in-your-life sicknesses and illness. There's an ancient um, book of medicine they found that dates to about this time uh, from, that re- from the Middle Eastern region, and they had a whole section that was about diagnosing moon-induced illness, and it was called Hand of Moon, and under Hand of Moon was all kinds of things that a person could be suffering from from too much moon exposure. And it included grinding teeth, nightmares, poor sleep, restless legs. I didn't even know they knew about that back then. And even madness. 
And then I found out that actually our culture had the same perspective of the moon. It's where they, we get the English word moonstruck and the word lunatic, luna meaning moon. And I'll tell you, if you ask a cop or an ER nurse, what happens at work when there's a full moon? They will tell you, everybody goes crazy. Like if you're gonna arrest someone and they strip naked and fight you with a Star Wars lightsaber toy, it's probably a full moon. That's what happens to a cop in a full moon. It's wild. So maybe the ancients were onto something, but what, what, what the Lord is speaking and what's being prayed into this person's beliefs, the way they see the world, is that God will protect you from the trouble you can see, from the trouble you can understand like the sun that burns your skin, can give you heat stroke, you know exactly what it is, and he can protect you from the nighttime dread, the unknown, the things that could be going on beneath the surface, the dread that you cannot see, problems that sneak up on you. I was listening to, uh, I've been feeling nostalgic lately, listening to all the Christian rock music I listened to as a teen. So I was listening to Switchfoot, and I forgot about this lyric in there that says, nothing to run from is worse than something. Nothing to run from is worse than something, because at least if you're fearing something specific, there can be resolve. It can come to an end. If you're worried, I mean, April, was, is it 15th? Is that a 16th? I try to file before tax day, whatever tax day is. Is it 15th, 16th, 16th? I think it's, I don't know, something like that. But look at all of us that file on the days before. We don't even know. That can be stressful, but eventually tax stuff will be resolved. But it's the stuff that you dread that you can't find that, that can't have its resolve. Fear of the unknown is said by psychologists to be a response to previous trauma. Essentially, you, something unexpected happened, and uh, now you're afraid that that will happen again. You walked, a person could, for instance, maybe walk around a corner, and they didn't see a car come, and it hits them immediately, and now they're afraid every time they approach a corner, though there's no car. They fear what could be there, what could be unseen. It might get me again. I didn't see it last time. We have those kind of fears about many, many things. Of all the times that we were surprised. And something inside of us says, never again. And what we do is we trade um, surprise terror for unending low-level torment of just this constant fear of unknown, of what could happen, what might happen to me. And the thing about a known threat, or we could consider a sun threat, you see it, you know it, you can block it, you can see where the shade is, you, you can find ways of, of dealing with it, and it can be resolved. But those hidden fears, those hidden things that are all around us, there's only one way out. When I study scripture of unknown fear, fear of the unknown, the only way out seems to be that our unknown threats and fears would be outweighed by our hope and assurance that God will lead us through. If you're fearing the unknown, what might happen to you, you need assurance for life that you could, you could handle it again. If it surprised you, the Lord can lead you through that thing. He can get you past it. We think of this incredible promise the Lord will shelter you from the trouble you see. He'll shelter you from the unknown fear that might surprise you. Not saying that nothing surprising will ever happen. 
but that nothing has ever surprised God. Nothing ever will, and he is your guardian. Jesus told you to live your life one day at a time, but God is way ahead of you, living days ahead of you and preparing and finding your way forward and finding your way out. The Song of Ascent concludes like this. The Lord will keep you from all harm and will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and goings now and forevermore. The Lord will keep you from all harm can be hard to read because I don't know about you, but I actually have been harmed by life. And I would imagine you have too. So what does this mean to be kept from harm when we know we've been harmed by life? What we find is that uh, the word for keep is a little more specific than it might appear. It comes from the same term for keeping a garden, of, of constantly watching it and pruning and shaping and helping it get through whatever it needs to get through, of, of guiding over it, that it won't be wild and terminus and left to it, its own devices, but it will still be subject to storms, still be subject to heat, but the gardener keeps it. Perhaps we could say he will, he prunes and attends to you so that you are protected from harm's final blow. God's protection to pilgrims isn't that harm never happens. It's that harm will shape and cultivate your life instead of destroying you. A patch of land with no garden could really honestly be destroyed and lose all of its fertile land. It can be wild, but when it's kept by a gardener, it continues to produce, though it's subject to the same environment as everything else. You can be subject to the same environment of unpredictability and terror and pain that other people are, but when the gardener watches over you, every single cut is not a cut, but it is plowing for new seeds to be grown within you, for new things to be there. Life springs up because the creator of life is now traveling with you. The journey has not been without pain, but God gives meaning to pain. He gives peace through it, gives endurance protects us from taking on more than we can handle. And the struggles will never be the end of you. I want to I wanna roll this video. It's silent, so don't worry that there's no sound. There's a cool thing Google put together to show just the enormity of our galaxy, of our universe. Assurance starts when we step back and we realize the greatness of God, his mighty power. The immense, incredible things that he has made, that the God who has made that is for us and with us. As we step back, we look at mountains, we look at oceans, as we look at these things, we need to take time to pause and to look at how great God is. That worship would come out of us naturally and fluidly and full. And that that is the way we start this ascent, remembering the enormity of this creation, of who God is. C.S. Lewis once said, God has infinite attention and infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in a line. You're as much alone with him as you are, as you, excuse me, as if you were the only thing he ever created. Infinite attention, infinite leisure. I talked about sometimes we see something in nature and it seems like God woke up that morning and every morning before and he will wake up every morning after to just cultivate it and make it just the way it is. God has that kind of attention for you. He said that if, if our Father in heaven feeds the birds, if he clothes the flowers, won't he care for you? Won't he clothe you? 
we, we look at the enormity of, of creation, the vastness of mountains, the power of everything. I'm sure you all saw, just as I did, the graphics as they were talking about the Titan and how deep the Titanic is, what 13,000 feet looks like. It's swallowed up in the belly of that sea is, is a, a ship that we all know and we all um, have seen stories about. And that great immense sea that swallowed it up was created by a God that is even greater. That the enormity of this galaxy was made by a God who is even greater. There is something that happens with us that we can get so fixed in. We can be the pilgrim that never leaves the city. We just stay busy. We never look up. We don't look at how great God is. We don't take a moment to let worship become a natural spark within us, sparked by his creation, sparked by who he is, that will ever lead us out. And so we have to just start the journey. We have to say that it begins, that I will begin this ascent. I want to go to where the Lord is. He set up a meeting place for me, and I am going to go. I'm going to remember how great he is before I go. Fear's got to go before you get there. Assurance and hope needs to replace it. And I'm going to pray that as we go through this summer, the songs of ascent, that we find God at a deeper level and a powerful level that transforms every last one of us. Lord, today we give you our complete attention. God, I pray that you would help us look up today and sideways and, and up and down this incredible place you've put us in. I thank you that you even poised us to live in such a beautiful area of this world. God, I pray that as we look at your power, at your might, at your creation, the vastness of what you made, that we begin to think how great you are, how much power you have over chaos, how assured we are in you, and just what it means to be a sheep belonging to this shepherd or a patch of land belonging to this gardener. That no matter what happens to us in life, you make it a spot that is living and full and we endure. God, I pray that we could ascend to where you are to see you face to face and that the change that you've been waiting to push us into in our lives, to, to, to establish new things, that this would be the season that we ascend and that the seeds go down, and that we encounter you and are changed. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.